Welcome to the Leaders of Interest podcast with your host, Jonathan J.J. Gerald. This is the podcast for relevant leaders, and now your host, J.J. So, Todd, welcome to the podcast. It's exciting to have you with us. Before we get started here, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. So my name is Todd Henry. I'm the author of two books, a book called The Accidental Creative that came out in 2011. I have a new book called Die Empty that came out just a couple of months ago. And I mostly, what I basically do on a day-to-day basis is I explore and help teams and individuals understand the dynamics of creativity in the marketplace. So how people come up with ideas, especially under pressure, and how they do that consistently And in order to be what I call prolific, brilliant, and healthy at the same time, that's really my area of expertise, my area of focus, and I've been doing that for many, many years. Um, I also have a podcast where I share a lot of these dynamics and do a lot of web writing as well. So that's a little bit of an insight into kind of what I spend my day-to-day life doing. Certainly. And you are putting out some good content. I would encourage anybody to listen to your podcast as well. I wanted to kind of get started with some would-you-rather questions. So they get harder as we go. Only got three of them for you. So would you rather watch Steve Martin's Bringing Down the House or Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. (laughs) What's your favorite scene? (laughs) Well, you're really putting me on the spot. Uh, I mean, come on, everybody goes, that's not a pillow, right? I mean, there are whatever that will be exactly. But I'll tell you, just the reconciliation that happens at the end of the whole thing, I think it really speaks a lot to, not to get too deep with it, but I mean, it speaks to the nature of humanity and how crisis can bind us together. And, you know, I've seen that a lot in organizations where we go through crises together and we end up all the better off for it because we find out what we're made of as an organization. So I think there are a lot of interesting life lessons to be learned in that movie as well. Not to go too deep with it, but I think there are a lot of interesting life lessons to be, to be learned as well. It's certainly one of my favorites, so I'm glad you picked it. Uh, would you rather sing on stage or present a keynote? <laughs> That's a great question because I've done both. I think at this point, probably present a keynote because when I used to, I was a performer in my, as I can now call it, my misguided 20s fun and you entertain people, but nobody pretended they were changing the world. And I really feel like when I get on stage in front of a group of, you know, whether it's 500 people or 2,000 people or whatever, I feel like I really have the chance to move the needle in their life and in their work and help them approach what they do differently, which to me feels like I am literally changing the world because I'm helping people go out into their sphere of influence and enact their focus, assets, time, energy in a way that's changing the world around them. So definitely present a keynote. Sure. And then here's the final one. Would you rather live fully alive or die empty? I would rather do both. I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I think that you can do both and you should strive to do both. Yeah, I would agree. And then one final, what's the toughest leadership decision you think you've ever had to make? Obviously, anytime you have to let somebody go, it's a challenging thing. And I think the hardest things I've had to do in my life probably are helping people understand from a leadership perspective, you know, there's something really great for you waiting out there, and I'm confident of that, but I don't think this is it. And I think that's one of the most challenging things any leader has to do is balancing what's right for an individual and for an organization with what's right with the objectives at hand. So I think, you know, that's what leaders get paid to do, to make tough decisions and to do what's right even when it's uncomfortable. And so I think probably the hardest decisions that I've had to make are those where you can kind of see that the path of an individual is going one way and the path of an organization is going another way, and you have to say, hey, I think it's time for us to part ways. 
Yeah, it certainly is one of the toughest decisions to have to make. I wonder, I wanted to kind of dive into your book because, in my opinion, it's absolutely one of the best leadership career books. And even I would call it a self-help book of 2013, certainly. It's one of my favorites. And Thank I you very wanted much. to kind of get into really what was the premise or what made you decide to write the book, Die Empty? Yeah, so it's funny because I told my publisher I really wrote the first book, The Accidental Creative, so that I could write the second book, Die Empty, because it's really the one that I've been wanting to write for a very long time. You know, about a decade ago, I was in a meeting, and a friend who was leading the meeting, he asked an out-of-the-blue question. He said, what do you think is the most valuable land in the world? And we're all thinking, that's a weird question. I don't know, most valuable land in the world. It's really, really strange. It seems kind of out of context. We start throwing out guesses, oil fields in the Middle East, or you know, gold mines of Africa, and all these things. And he said, no, I think you're all wrong. He said, I think the most valuable land in the world is the graveyard, because in the graveyard are buried all of the unwritten novels, all of the unlaunched businesses, all of the unexecuted intentions that people had in their life, and they carried around with them. They said, I'm going to get around to that tomorrow. I'm going to start that tomorrow. And they pushed it, and they pushed it, and they pushed it into the future until one day they reached the bookend of their life, and all of that opportunity was lost. All of that value was buried with them dead in the ground, never to be seen by human eyes ever again. And that really struck me in a profound way. He said all of that value that could have been out there in the world and enjoyed by others was buried never to be seen because they didn't take the time, make the effort to enact their intentions. And so that day I went back to my office and I wrote two words on an index card. I put them on the wall of my office. I put them in my notebook. And those two words were die empty. Because I want to know when I reach the end of my life, J.J., I want to know, and whether that's you know, two days from now or two years from now or two decades or, you know, who knows. However long in the future that is, I want to know when I reach the bookend of my life, I have not left anything inside of me that I wanted to get out, that I have emptied myself on a day-to-day basis of whatever value I have to offer the world around me so that when I lay my head down for the last time, I can say, I didn't get around to everything. Of course, I hope I have more dreams, hopes, ambitions, all of that when I die than I did the day before. But I can look at the body of work that I've built and I can say, yes, that represents me. That stands for what I believe. Yes, that is a wonderful expression of what I would want to have said about me in my life. I didn't carry my best work to the grave with me. And so when I talk about this idea of die empty, for me, this is a personal living ethic that's been with me for the last 10 years of my life. And so when the opportunity came and the publisher came after the first book and said, hey, the Accidental Creative did really well. What would you like to write about? And I said, well, I think I'd kind of like to write about this. I was super thrilled when they said, great, go for it, because it really has been kind of the core passion area of mine for a long time. And even when I would go out and talk about the accidental creative, it was funny because I would go out and talk to companies about creativity and innovation and systems and all of this, and I would always sort of kind of bend it toward this at the end, right? That's the logical so what. And yeah, so I'm just really thrilled to, to be doing this. And I'm actually now working on another book that's, I think, going to be an extension of this concept as well, because I think that, you know, we can go even further with it. wait to see that. Would you mind sharing the title? We don't have a title yet, but it's going to be about how people find their voice and how companies find their voice. So what happens that allows them to hit that inflection point when all of a sudden their message and what they're doing becomes really resonant in the marketplace? 
Well, you know, I really see Die Empty as being almost like a roadmap, right, of how you live your life and your career and how you invest in yourself. And I wonder, for the last 10 years that you've really been out there training and teaching the content from the book, do you feel like your life has changed or, or maybe that there's something that you may have left out of the book? Yeah, you know, that's the funny thing because ideas and concepts are living, breathing things. And I think experience validates certain things and it causes you to question others. So over time, I would say my confidence in what I wrote in Diamante, specifically about the seven deadly sins and some of the concepts, I left them, I think, broad enough that you can fold other concepts into them. But I can't really say that at this point I'm seeing anything that is <laughs> in any way challenging my thinking about this. And if anything, it's only becoming more and more solidified and confirmed as I'm encountering people who are actually putting these things into practice and saying, hey, these have already had a, a significant and profound impact in my life. So, and again, anytime you read any advice from someone, whether it's in a book or you hear it from a manager or you whatever, Anytime, you always have to put it through the filter of how does this apply to my life? How can this be actionable for me? And you also have to look at it through the lens of which of this is useful and helpful to me and not take it as an airtight system. And I tell people that all the time. Listen, my goal with the Accidental Creative was to help people come up with ideas more consistently when they need them. And whatever advice is useful to you, apply it to your life and use it. And I want to provide a framework for you through which to look at your work. And the same thing with Die Empty. I want to provide a framework for you to look at your life through a lens that can help you focus in on areas where maybe you've become stagnant. Maybe you've grown, you've started to slip into a state of mediocrity or apathy or comfort. And here are some points of traction to help you get out of that so you can continue building a body of work that you can be proud of. Yeah, I think I remember, and I may get this wrong, but there was a quote that you had in the book. This is, uh, uh, Urgency and diligence are the foundation of hustle. And hustle is the best antidote for lifelong regret. And I wonder if you could kind of expand on that a little bit for us. Yeah. You know, if you talk to people who are later in life, came across a lot of really interesting research from people who had spent time with individuals who are later in life. So they were maybe in their twilight years, and they kind of knew they were kind of getting to the end of life. And the things that they regretted the most were those questions of what if. What if I had tried this? What if I had said yes? What if I had put a little more of myself into this? What if I, what if I, what if I? And I think that if we approach our life with the perspective of I'm going to minimize the number of what ifs in my life, it's always a chance that we'll make a wrong choice. But I don't want to make mistakes of omission. I want to make mistakes of commission. I want to do things aggressively. And if I make a mistake, that's fine, but at least I made a decision and I tried something. I don't want to get to the end of my life and say, what if I had tried a little harder? What if I had put a little more of myself into it? What if I had taken a few more risks in my life and in my work, a few more calculated risks? And there's a really interesting story uh, I also came across of Jeff Bezos, who founded Amazon.com, obviously, and he was working, um, at the time he was wanting to start the company, he was working in New York, he was making a lot of money, he had a big bonus coming up, and he was weighing the question of, do I quit my job and move across the country and start this internet company, or do I stick around and collect my bonus? And he came up with what he called the regret minimization framework, which is a total Amazon type thing to do, right? <laughs> now if you look at it, but he said, you know, he projected himself out to age 80 and he said, which of these things will I regret more at age 80? Will I regret more walking away from a healthy financial bonus or will I regret more 
not having taken a chance and at the right time and tried this Internet thing that I think could be really big. And he said he thought he would probably regret more not having taken the chance, that he would regret the money that he would make from his bonus, especially if he amortized that over the course of the next 60 years of his life or whatever. So I think if we all have a, a similar approach in life and work and we say, hey, I've got two paths in front of me, and the one on the right is maybe the more comfortable path. It's the one I'm more familiar with. The one on the left is a little riskier, maybe. There's more uncertainty there. Which of these paths am I going to regret more at age 80 looking back on my life? And I think if we live our life – no, by the way, it doesn't mean always take the risk either. It doesn't mean always go the riskiest way. What it means is make sure that you're not living your life by default, but that you're living your life by design. And make sure that you're pouring yourself into your work with urgency and with diligence. Urgency meaning my work today is important. I have to get around to it. And diligence meaning I'm treating my life and my work like a craftsman. I'm striving to get better at what I do every day. And if you do that, I believe those are the foundation of hustle, what we call hustle. And if you hustle on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't mean killing yourself. It doesn't mean dying, you know, literally passing out at the end of the day. But what it means is just put yourself into what you do fully on a day-to-day basis. Pour yourself emotionally. Bring yourself emotionally to your work. If you do that on a day-to-day basis, you are going to minimize the number of regrets that you have in your life. And your yeah, work, JJ, your work is not just your job. I mean, that's the most physical manifestation of our work because most of us spend probably a third of our life there and then probably close to half of our waking life at our job. It's not only your job, that's the most physical manifestation. It's also any place you add value in your life. It's how you treat your family. It's where you spend your money, how you treat the barista at Starbucks, how you develop yourself mentally, emotionally. All of these things are a part of the body of work that you're building. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I bringing myself fully to what I do or am I living my life by default? Well, I think that's a great segue into my next question, bringing yourself fully into what you do. And that is, well, let me just ask you the question. The question of mediocrity, I mean, I see that in so many areas of people's lives. And I think that chapter really hit me about how sometimes we in life just settle We just settle for the paycheck or settle for things that are going on around us, and we don't intentionally change them. Uh, What's your thought around mediocrity? Yeah, well, this word mediocrity is interesting to me because in the original language, it comes from two words, medius, which means middle, and ochrus, which means rugged mountain. So to be mediocre, if you parse it out into the original language, to be mediocre literally means to stop halfway up a rugged mountain. It means to stop halfway to your objective. It's not about being insufficient necessarily. It's about the mindset of, eh, close enough. I'm going to settle in. And the thing is, I've seen so many bright, sharp, amazing, talented people, JJ, who start off up the mountain. They're chugging up the mountain. They're excited. They can't wait. They're going to take it on. They're going to accomplish their goals. And at some point, they say, nah, close enough, right? And this happens over and over and over again. And so I believe that, that mediocrity is less Nobody chooses to be mediocre. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to crank out a steaming pile of crap today. Nobody does that. But yet it happens over time, but it happens in small ways. We become mediocre in small ways over time as we make little choices about where we put our focus, our assets, our time, and our energy. That's how we wind up in a state of mediocrity. It's those small daily decisions. We get fixated on the big change, the big delta, the peak of the mountain, and we say, oh, 
oh, uh, that's where I want to be. That's the thing I want to do. That's the body of work I want to build, the big delta, the big change that exists because I suck there on this earth. That's what I want to do. And at some point, we get halfway up the mountain. We're like, but it's hard. We're, it's challenging. The wind is whipping in my face. And, it's, you know, and we get halfway up and we say, well, it seems overwhelming now from where I am to reach the peak of the mountain. And what we fail to realize is that big delta is comprised of a lot of little deltas, little decisions, daily decisions about where we put our focus, our assets, our time, our energy. Our fate determines our fate, right? Focus, assets, time, and energy. And so what we have to do is have checkpoints built into our life to ask ourselves on a daily basis, where am I putting those four resources and how can I pour myself into my work today in a way that's moving me closer? I don't have to get to the peak today. I just have to make a couple of steps toward the peak today. And if we maintain that mindset over time and we refuse to allow the seven deadly sins of mediocrity to creep into our life, then we will continue moving up the mountain. Now, that doesn't mean our objective won't change, of course. I mean, objectives change all the time for various reasons. Maybe we have more knowledge, more insight into who we are. Objectives can change, but it should be the result of purposeful change, not the result of apathy or slipping into mediocrity or a state of comfort, not satisficing, to borrow a term from Herbert Simon, which means satisfy and sufficing. Nah, close enough. We don't want to do that. We want to, or any change of goals or ambitions, we want to be intentional because we've gained greater knowledge about who we are and what we want. Yeah, and good point. And mediocrity is not just something that we accept on one day. It really builds up, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's cumulative. I mean, it's, the more you compromise, the easier it is to compromise in the future. For example, if I decide one day, you know, I'm just going to skip my workout today, it gets easier the next day to skip your workout. But if you have in your life, if you've proven to yourself that even when it's hard, you're going to do it. It becomes a habit. One of the other stories I came across in writing Die Empty was a story of Jerry Seinfeld. He, he had an encounter with a young comedian, and the comedian was saying, how do you become great at what you do? And Jerry Seinfeld said, well, here's the answer. The answer is I have a wall calendar on my wall, and every day it's my ambition to write jokes. And every day that I write jokes, I put a big red X through that date on the calendar. And after a couple days, I have two X's in a row. And after a week, I have seven X's in a row. And after a month, I have 30 X's in a row. He said, after that, you've got a pretty long chain of proven track record that you're doing the thing on a day-to-day basis. He said, the goal, don't break the chain. If you don't break the chain, if you keep doing on a daily basis the stuff that you know matters, over time you're going to get better and better at what you do. And if you do it long enough, then eventually you're going to reach your goal. But I don't think we like those answers that involve daily, diligent, persistent, consistent effort. Instead, we want the secret. We want the trick, right? But there is no trick. The trick is that there are no tricks. It's daily disciplined effort, daily disciplined improvement, daily disciplined sharpening of your mind, of your emotional ability to bring yourself to your work. That is what causes people to continue up the rugged mountain. If you ask people who climb mountains for a living, There's a tremendous amount of physical exertion involved, but there's a tremendous amount of mental and emotional exertion involved because at some point, everybody hits the wall. No matter how good of shape you're in, it's like running a marathon. At some point, no matter how much training you've done, you're going to hit the wall. The question is, do you want it bad enough? Have you shaped yourself emotionally and mentally to help you push through that wall to continue toward your objectives? Sure. Wow. Started out with our objective of this podcast, and that is to help leaders become more relevant. And there was a quote that you had in there about the fastest path to irrelevancy as a leader. Can you talk about that for us? 
the fastest path to irrelevancy as a leader is to sell out your team. No question about it. The moment that you sell out your team by blaming them for a wrong that ultimately should be coming back on your shoulders, you have completely made yourself irrelevant as a leader. So as a leader, you have to go first. You have to be the first one over the hill. You have to take the most arrows. You have to prove to your team, listen, we're in this together, but if I'm the one who's ultimately on the line for making the decision, I'm the one who's going to take the arrows if things go wrong. The moment you sell out someone on your team, you have forever lost your credibility as a leader. And it's really hard to get it back because your team suddenly realizes, oh, I guess that Todd or Joe or Sue – I guess they're in it for themselves. They're not in it for us. And so they tell us, hey, here's the objective, here's the peak of the mountain, but really they're kind of in it for themselves. And and look at our political scene right now. And look at people in leadership, and I'm using air quotes, right? Look at the people in leadership in our government. Why is it that people don't trust those in our government? It's because people at the end of the day kind of suspect that really it's all about them. It's all about re-election. It's not about making hard. Now, by the way, this is not true because I know that there are plenty of very good people in government, you know, working in government and running our country, elected officials. But general consensus, the general idea is that everybody's in it for themselves. And it's all about re-election. It's all political. It's all about money. It's all about all of this. And so people don't trust the people who are supposed to be leading our country because there's this sense that it's all about them. And the same thing happens in organizations. As a leader, you have to maintain integrity and commitment to your team, which means that you have to take the most arrows. And also, that means you have to speak very clearly about what you expect, even when you're uncertain that it's the right thing. You know, a lot of leaders, they refuse to be specific and clear in their communication to their team because they don't want to put themselves on the line by asking for something that they're not certain of. But that uncertainty trickles down within the organization and pretty soon the team becomes paralyzed with inaction because nobody's certain of what to do. So you have to be certain of expectations even when you're unclear about whether those expectations are the right or wrong thing. Your team needs points of traction and need to be able to look at you and say, well, that person's accountable and they're telling me this is what I need to do. And, uh, you know, I would say that as a leader, just what you said, decision-making and kind of stepping out of your comfort zone in order to make decisions. Chapter 6 is about your comfort zone. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that for us. What is your idea of stepping out of your comfort zone as it relates to leadership? Yeah, I think it's intentional and regular challenging of yourself to go outside of the places that you would go by default. Right, So the comfort zone, we're biologically hardwired to stay in our comfort zone, and we are. You know, Honestly, if anyone can make a living just kind of sitting around and eating Doritos and watching Breaking Bad on Netflix all day, a lot of us biologically would default to that because that's a very comfortable thing to do for a lot of people. But the reality is that we get rewarded when we add value, especially when we add unique value or disproportionate value in the marketplace. So the only path to that is continued regular disintermediation of your love of comfort, of your desire for comfort. And the only way to do that is to set into your life specific goals that push you to develop new skills, to try new things, and to commit to a lifelong obsession with personal growth and innovation. We talk about growth and innovation on an organizational level, but we often don't talk about it on a personal level. And maybe you'll take a class or you'll read a book every once in a while or something like that, but do you have a specific course of action that you're taking that's helping you develop as a leader, develop emotional intelligence, develop new skills? Because the reality is if you continue depending on the skills that got you to where you are, eventually those skills are going to fall short. 
because you can only shoot from the hip for so long. You have to be continuously going back, reinventing yourself, learning new skills, trying new things, applying those, finding your voice as a leader, building your platform of credibility and authority. But the only way that happens is if you're committing to regular growth, regular innovation on a personal level and asking yourself, what new skills do I need to learn? And then setting in place goals, step goals and stretch goals to help you and sprint goals to help you continue to develop those new skills. So if you want to learn a new skill, there's some way to quantify it. Say, I want to be able to do this by this date. And then you can work your way backward from there and say, well, that means I have to be able to do this by this date which means on a daily basis, here's the progress I need to be making in order to get there. Well, you know, you mentioned the goals. Do you mind running through those real quick, the step, sprint, and stretch? Yes, a stretch goal is a goal that is over a long season. It's something that you know it's going to push you to go out of your comfort zone, right? So let's say that you, know, you, you have all these like couch to 5K kind of things for runners. I'm not a runner, but I'll use this as an example because I know a lot of people who have done this. So you've got couch to 5K thing. That's an example of it. Let's say that you decide, I'm going to run a marathon. I think I'm going to run it. Well, nobody just goes out and runs a marathon. Right? You don't just do that if you're not a regular runner. So it takes months and months to train for it. Once you've decided, let's say you're going to run a marathon in May, well, you know by this date I need to be able to run this far. There are a lot of resources out there to help you do that, which means on a daily basis or on an every other day basis, I need to be building into my life things that push me out of my comfort zone, that get me up off my rear, Cause me to put my shoes on so that I can be building up to those sprint goals, which are the intermediate goals that build up into that stretch goal, which is I want to be able to run a marathon by May. You know, so that's how they all kind of nest into one another. The step goals are those the X's on the calendar, like the Jerry Seinfeld thing, the don't break the chain. That's a step goal. So once you've established your step goals, you can start marking X's off the calendar. A chain of those step goals is a sprint goal, which means a series of goals you've met in a row, and you and they funnel up into that sprint goal. And then several sprint goals funnel up into the stress goal, which is the thing that you're doing that you want to accomplish long-term is going to push you out of your comfort zone. Oh, great. I want to be mindful every time, so just a couple more questions so you can go get on a plane. You mentioned defining your battles in your book, and I just wonder why is it necessary to define your battles? Why wouldn't we just hit every battle head on? Yeah, well, because we have finite resources at our disposal. We have a limited amount of focus, assets, time, and energy. We'd like to think we have unlimited focus, but we don't. We are beings who are biologically hardwired to focus on one thing at a time. And if we have too many things going on in our world, we'll become paralyzed because we can't possibly make progress on too many priorities. Assets. We have limited assets at our disposal. I mean, even Warren Buffett has limited assets at his disposal, right? Bill Gates. Our time. We have 168 hours a week at our disposal. And we have a finite amount of that that we can spend doing discretionary projects or work, and so we have to be good at using our time effectively. And energy. We tend to think we have unlimited amounts of energy, but the reality is if we're not good at pruning, JJ, pruning out lesser priorities in our life, we will eventually run out of the energy we need to be able to do our best work. So it's important to define our battles on one front because we have finite resources, but on another front because we want to be able to tie together all of the work that we're doing so that it's funneled up into that bigger battle that we're trying to fight, the outcome that we're committed to. So, and I call this finding your through line or finding your, what I call productive passion. This word passion 
again, if we take it back to the original language, it comes from the root word that means to suffer. So we have to ask ourselves, what work, what outcome am I willing to suffer on behalf of? What outcome am I disproportionately concerned about in my life and in my work? And once we begin answering questions like that and defining a through line, that we say, this is the outcome, this is the through line for all of my work that I am committed to or that is an organization we're committed to, it becomes much easier to make those priority decisions about which battles we're going to take on and which battles we're not going to take on. Because if it doesn't funnel up into the through line, it might not be worth our focus, assets, time, and energy. But a lot of people want to go backwards and they want to say, well, let's, let's build a lot of value and then we'll figure out what it all means. And you can't do that sustainably for very long without the organization becoming dissonant and off course. Everything has to tie back to that through line. Yeah, it does. And I think our listeners can certainly hear the passion that you have for this topic in this book. <laughs> you know, I mean, it I, certainly I, comes I, through. I've obviously identified my through line, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely you have. And, you know, I wanted to do something, uh, as everybody's listening understands, I'm J.J. Gerald, and if you buy this book and you don't find it, it adds value to you, I'm going to buy it back. I'll give it to somebody wow. in my circle. So at the end of the show, I'm going to have my address for you and just send me back your book and your receipt, and I'll even pay for the shipping so I can give it to somebody in my circle. That's how much I appreciate this book, Todd. Wow, and, uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. A couple more questions for you, and that is, who's doing something right now that you think is interesting? Are you talking on a business level? Are you talking... Sure. Um, yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting to see how some of these company cultures are emerging that are trying to deal with authority in new ways, right? And you have people, I mean, like, I don't know if you just saw that, you know, like, for example, Zappos got sort of created this kind of completely flat architecture right, culturally, and you've got Netflix who has a culture of accountability and responsibility where they're telling people, listen, you're adults, so we're not going to micromanage you, you know, every day. Instead, we're going to let you make decisions about how much vacation time you should be taking and whether or not you're providing the kind of value you should be providing. I think we're in an interesting time where, you know, because so much of what we do now culturally is the result of turning our thoughts into value. There's a lot more latitude about how we go about that, but there's also a lot more pressure. So I'm really interested to see over the next decade or so, I'm interested to see how our work methods evolve to deal with some of that uncertainty that we're facing and to see how we can collaborate you know, more effectively because the problem is that creative work requires a lot of alone time, a lot of isolation because even though, you know, Ideas happen in the context of collaboration. Typically, it's the seeds of things that come up during our time alone, our isolation, that we bring to that collaboration that creates that kind of traction for the, for the ideation for the organization. So I'm really interested to see over the next, call it decade or so, how our understandings and expectations of work evolve as the economy evolves. There's a fantastic book that I'm wrapping up reading called Who Owns the Future?, by Jaron Lanier, who's an artificial intelligence researcher. Uh, he's at Microsoft, and he's sort of a leading thinker in the whole space of technology and where technology is going. And he raises some interesting questions about what's going to happen to the middle class as technology continues to evolve and get better and better. And we're seeing in the music business and in the film business how technology is disintermediating the business, and it's 
making it harder and harder for people in the mid-levels of the industries to make a living because of rapid copying of information and the sharing of music. You know, it's sort of completely disrupting that industry. And his argument is the same thing's going to happen in medicine. I mean, the moment that you have a robot that can make better, faster decisions on the spot than a heart surgeon, what's going to happen to the heart surgeon? They're going to go away. You're going to need a couple of heart surgeons to program the robots, but you're not going to need nearly as many heart surgeons in every city as you used to need. His point is that it's not just the music industry, the arts that are going to be disrupted. Those are just the, that's the low-hanging fruit, but we're going to have entire industries disrupted by the people who know how to build these servers and these algorithms that can make decisions as technology advances sufficiently. So I find that to be fascinating, and I think that it's going to be a really interesting next couple of decades to see how it all shakes out. But the one thing I do know for certain is that if you commit individually and as a leader, if you commit to continuous growth, improvement, paying attention to these things, sharpening your mind, developing your skills, you're going to be riding the wave instead of going under the wave when the wave hits the beach. Yeah, and I mean, if you drill that down, just stay relevant. Exactly. Stay, exactly stay right. on top of your trade. I wonder two things, two final questions. That is, do you have any final thoughts or if it really needed to synthesize your book, what would be the main takeaway of your book? Be purposeful. Be disciplined. Live your life by design, not by default. Don't allow the forces of apathy and stagnancy to rob you of your contribution. Instead, on a day-to-day basis, sit down, design your life, live by, defo- by design, make sure that you're putting your focus, assets, time, and energy against things that you're going to point to later with pride. I think that's probably the best summation I can give. Yep. What's the best way for people to find you? The best way to find me is at my personal site, which is toddhenry.com, two Ds, T-O-D-D-H-E-N-R-Y.com and you can get to pretty much anything else from there. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Be sure to look us up online at leadersofinterest.com. Become a mentor of mentors by rating us in iTunes and Stitcher. Your five-star rating helps us invest in leaders just like you. See you next time.